Friends, this morning as we return to our sermon series in 2 Corinthians, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in this passage, we'll get to the heart of the reason why Paul wrote this letter. And that reason can be summarized in one word, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Paul wants relationships to be restored. This is what he had been praying for. 2 Corinthians 13, 9, your restoration is what we pray for. If you remember the situation at Corinth, all sorts of relationships had been affected and disrupted. And, and much of this relational damage was caused by false apostles who had led these members astray. So believers were not at peace with one another. They were fighting over their leaders. Uh, many of them had even turned against Paul and were questioning his apostleship. And if you remember, one of their members who had sinned against Paul repented when Paul wrote them a tearful letter. That was a testimony to the power of the Spirit working through the apostolic word. And by God's grace, a majority of the congregation who had formerly turned against Paul also repented and once again embraced Paul as their apostle. But there were still some who had not done so, who had not repented. There was an unrepentant minority. And so Paul in this letter labors to bring them to repentance by reminding them of God's reconciling grace in the gospel. So look with me at 2 Corinthians 5 verses 16 to 21. And as you hear the word, pay careful attention to what you hear and ask the Lord to speak to your hearts and transform your relationships. Listen now to the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would now minister to our minds so that we would know how to live and serve one another in this congregation for Your glory. As we labor in weakness for the faith and joy of one another, may Your power be manifest as we confess our sins, have our joy restored, and our relationships healed. Help us, Father, to better understand your gospel of peace so that we might be peacemakers and give ourselves to the ministry of reconciliation. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Do you remember the first time you had a relational problem with someone in the church? Failed expectations, unkind words, misunderstandings, or outright disagreements that then led to frustration, emotional turmoil, and awkward moments. Well, if you haven't had any of these, then it probably means that you're avoiding people altogether. Friends, I want to set the record straight and tell you that relationships in the church can be and often are messy. If you've had conflicts with your friends, conflicts with your co-workers, conflicts with your children, conflicts with your spouse, then you're going to have conflicts with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. You see, some people think that churches are supposed to be conflict-free zones where sinless people exist in harmony, affirm each other all the time, and sing kumbaya together. You know, this sort of thinking demonstrates a faulty understanding of a Christian's identity. It demonstrates a, a faulty understanding of the nature of the church and a faulty understanding of God's plan for His people who are saved by grace. In essence, it demonstrates that this person hasn't understood very well that the message of the gospel that our faith is grounded on is the good news of God's reconciling grace. You see, reconciliation is nothing but the bringing together of two parties that have been estranged, that are at odds, at enmity with one another. And this is the story of our conversion, isn't it? We who were once enemies of God and alienated from Him because of our sin, because of our sin against God's utter goodness and holiness, have been reconciled to Him through the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who have had their eyes opened, unveiled to see the glory of God's reconciling grace in the face of Jesus Christ, are also called, that's you and me, we're also called to the ministry of reconciliation. You see, those who have tasted of God's reconciling goodness are called to become reconcilers themselves. You know, Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 5 verse 8. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. That is, those who work hard at this ministry of reconciling relationships in the church. Why are they blessed? For they shall be called sons of God. You see, to be engaged in this ministry, to enter into chaos and conflict and tension and turmoil and tears and to address sin biblically, to address the heart, to remind one another of repentance and forgiveness, to remind one another of the purpose of relational hardships and the power of the gospel and to enter into the messiness of estranged relationships and to be used of God to minister love and unity and holiness and affection, all of that is to be about the work of the Spirit of Jesus. It is to be sons and daughters of God. Now, if our transformation and our ministry is dependent on the glory of the gospel of reconciliation, and it is, then we must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. And we need to see 
the church with gospel lenses. We need to have a different perspective of our relationships in the body because we belong to Jesus who is using our relationships with one another to not only comfort us in suffering, but to also transform us into His likeness as we lovingly reconcile to one another. As Tim Lane writes, Relationships will push you beyond the limits of your ability to love, serve, and forgive. They will push you beyond you. At times, they will beat at the borders of your faith. At times, they will exhaust you. In certain situations, your relationships will leave you disappointed and discouraged. They will require what you do not seem to have. But get this. But that is exactly as God intended it. That is precisely why He placed these demanding relationships in the middle of the process of sanctification, where God progressively molds us into the likeness of Jesus. End quote. Friends, we must not only think Christianly, but we must also learn to relate to one another as Christians and not assess our relationships based on worldly standards. Now, the fundamental problem with the false teachers at Corinth was that they were not looking at the church with spiritual eyes. They were fascinated with outward appearances, if you remember. They were fascinated with what was impressive from a worldly point of view. And they were living for themselves, being peddlers of God's word. They had no categories to understand Paul's afflictions, and so they questioned his apostleship and his motives. And Paul argues in this chapter that he was driven and controlled by nothing other than the love of Christ Himself. Jesus died, says Paul. He died for His people so that they might live not for themselves, but for Him. But for Him who died and rose. And so in our passage this morning, Paul returns to the basics. You see, when you read chapter 5, verse 14, we read, that Jesus died for the sake of His people and He rose so that they might no longer live for themselves but for Him. And Paul tells the Corinthians this because, we see it in verse 12, because he wants to equip them to answer those false apostles who were boasting about outward appearances and not about what God was doing in the hearts of His people through His Spirit. They could not see the glory of the new covenant and what God was doing through Paul's apostolic ministry. And so if you were there in that congregation, listening to the letter, 2 Corinthians, as it was being read in the congregation, if you were there, you might have asked this question. Okay. All right, Paul, tell us. What does living for Jesus and not for myself look like? And what does that have to do with our relational problems? And the answer that Paul gives in this passage is this. To no longer live for ourselves but for Jesus is to embrace the ministry of reconciliation. It is to be genuinely concerned about others and the glory of God in the church. This is at the heart of the glory of New Covenant ministry in the local church. And so the first lesson we can learn 
about living for our Savior is this. Number one, we must have a new mindset. We must have a new mindset. Look at verse 16. From now on, that is from the point that we are made able to live for Christ, from that moment, from the moment the light of the gospel shines into our hearts, from the moment we are unveiled, from the moment we are given eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul is thinking about his conversion here. From that moment, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying we have come to believe that the gospel enables us to live for Jesus. Therefore, in light of this gospel change, we see differently. We regard no one according to the flesh. And by that he means we no longer look at things from a worldly perspective according to the sinful flesh. You know, the opposite would be to look at things, to know, to regard people according to the Spirit. To see them with spiritual eyes. There's, there's so many ways of saying this. To, to put on the mind of Christ. To think Christianly. To behold with an unveiled face. And the implication here is that those false apostles were regarding people according to the flesh. That's why they were enamored with status and power and rhetoric for their ministry. And this is why those Corinthian members who were also thinking according to the flesh were so easily swayed by these men. But Paul says living for Jesus means we no longer evaluate brothers and sisters from a worldly point of view. So when you have a conflict with someone, Don't say, oh, she's a Filipino, that's how she is. There's no point talking to her. Don't say, oh, he's an American, he's written books, he speaks at so many conferences, he must be right, how can he be wrong? How can I ever correct him? You know, these men were able to push these Corinthians around precisely because they fit the bill of what was culturally impressive. They were culturally conditioned. And controlled. Their thinking was worldly. Now, on the other hand, you have Paul who says, God uses jars of clay, weak, suffering people who in their bodies display the death and resurrection life of Christ so that God gets all the glory through their ministries. Friends, to regard someone according to the flesh means. That when it comes to matters of sanctification, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to marriage, you are primarily, if you're thinking in a fleshly way, you are primarily thinking about what makes sense to you, what makes sense to your culture, what matters to the world around you, ethnicity, strength, wealth, social status, intellectual and physical capabilities, fame, public opinion, to name a few. And Paul says, you know what? We, the apostles, you know, once upon a time we used to think about Jesus in this way. But ever since we came to faith, we don't think about him in that way anymore. 
Look at the text. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. You know, Paul once saw Jesus with an unregenerate mind. He saw Jesus as a mere man, a Jewish troublemaker, a nobody, someone who did not meet the Jewish nationalistic expectation and criteria for a Messiah, someone who died a scandalous and cursed death, and he hated him, and he wanted to crush anyone who followed him. See, there was a time when Paul was veiled, until that day when on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him and saved him. He opened his eyes to see his saving glory, and for the very first time, Paul understood what the Scriptures meant. And he saw and embraced the risen Christ as Savior and Lord. Beloved, the Scriptures teach us to see with new eyes, to understand people differently, to see the way God wants us to see them, to see with the wisdom of the Spirit and not with the wisdom of the world. See, that's the reason Paul wrote to these Corinthians. He wants them to assess their situation and these leaders and their estrangement differently. Think about it. Weren't you this way as well? Before you became a Christian, what did Jesus mean to you? What does He mean to you now? How did you think about your sins then? How do you think about your sins now? What's your relationship with your sin now? You see, it is Christ Himself, it is His glory revealed in the gospel that gives us this new spiritual sight, this new mindset. And if we have a new mindset, That means we are not who we once were. We have a new identity. And that brings us to our second point. Living for Christ and not for ourselves means we live out of our new identities. And that's why Paul concludes this. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. See, to be... In Christ is to be in union with Him. It is to be united to Him through faith and by the Spirit. This work is what the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah looked forward to when he spoke about God's promises to restore His sinful people to Himself. Isaiah 43 verses 18 to 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? But friends, when Isaiah spoke about God's restoration, he didn't just reduce it to the reconciliation of sinners to God. He didn't just reduce it to the forgiveness of sins. No, he spoke of something far more expansive. He prophesied about the restoration of all things. When not only would people live in everlasting joy, reconciled to God, in communion with God, but that they would do so in a new world, a new creation, where sin and its ravages would be no more, where there would be no sound of weeping and no cry of distress. Isaiah 65 verse 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. 
And Paul alludes to that passage, and he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is, right now, a new creation. And that means that the coming of Jesus into the world, the coming of the Son of God into our sinful world in human flesh was the beginning of the end. The restoration of all things, those things that Isaiah saw, has begun with the first coming of Jesus Christ and will be completed, perfected, consummated with His second coming. Jesus, in His death and resurrection, has inaugurated the new covenant. God has made a way for sinners to relate to Him in an entirely new way. Through the proclamation of this gospel, God causes people to be born again. He gives them new hearts and He enables them to see their sins and to delight in His saving rule over their lives. This is why Jesus said in John 3 verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into it. You see, the cross and resurrection of Jesus has inaugurated the new creation. We know that because we have been given new hearts. And one day when Christ returns, He will give us new bodies. In chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians verse 1, Paul says that if our earthly bodies are destroyed, we know that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul is looking at his broken, suffering body, and he's seeing his situation not according to the flesh, but with new eyes. He's looking to things unseen. He's seeing with the eyes of faith. He's trusting in God's Word. The building work of our new bodies, so to speak, has begun with our new hearts and will continue with our transformation into the likeness of Christ and will culminate one day with sin-free resurrection bodies in the new earth. And this is why Paul says the old has passed away. You know, this verb suggests a, a definite action in the past. The old here is a, is a comprehensive term. It refers to the old age, the values of this sinful world system that Christ has judged on the cross, but it also refers to the old covenant that has fulfilled its purpose. The old also refers to the old man, our old sinful way of life that had solidarity with, with Adam with respect to our sin. And he says, Behold, look, look, the new has come. This verb is in the perfect tense, telling us that something has happened already and there are ongoing effects of that. And those effects will continue till our glorification. The new creation has dawned. We have experienced the new birth. We have a new covenantal head. We are no longer in Adam, but in Christ we have a new identity. We have a new relationship with our sin. We have a new master. Christ rules over us. His Spirit indwells us and empowers us. We are slaves to Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We've been set free. 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Beloved, you need to remember this the next time you get into conflict with a brother or sister. Remember to who you belong. Remember your new identities. 
you can be hopeful of reconciliation just as Paul was because of these truths. See each other with new eyes. You have the Spirit. Be hopeful of reconciliation. Let these truths constrain and control you. Let them inform the way you see one another. And let these truths inform how you ought to approach one another. You know, these members, these Corinthians, <clears throat> they should have known better than to divide over their leaders and to distance themselves from Paul. But they should have also known that to be in Christ meant to be a member of His body. You know, God has put His Spirit within them and bound them to Christ and to one another through Paul's apostolic preaching. Brothers, we need to recognize that each one of us is a work in progress. And God has called us to be instruments of grace in each other's lives. So have realistic and biblical expectations of your relationships. Have realistic and biblical expectations of your relationships. If God ordains our sufferings, think about this, if God ordains our sufferings to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory, if He comforts us so that we can comfort one another, then we should also see that He uses the affliction. Yes, I said affliction. He uses the affliction of relational conflict to do the same thing. So that we would no longer rely on ourselves but that we would turn to Him and His gospel of grace and work hard to restore these relationships for His glory. So yes, it's messy, but it's worth it. It's about the glory of God. Oh friends, don't live for yourself. Live for something bigger than yourself. Recognize this. Just as God leads us into sufferings, we should remember that He is sovereign over relational dysfunction as well. These things don't take Him by surprise. Beloved, the Lord wants to teach you and me in this journey of sanctification that we, that we must see our problems with a new mind and remember our new identities so that we would not lean on worldly strategies. Oh, you stay in your corner and I'll stay in my lane and we'll get along fine. Or on cheap psychological tricks. Oh, just ignore them. You, you do you. You, know, you come, you worship God by yourself. No, just put that nonsense out of your mind. Recognize the reconciling power of the gospel. That treasure we have in jars of clay. That treasure is more than able to not only heal and restore these relationships, but also sustain them and cause them to flourish with love and affection and joy and unity. You know, this is not something that churches can opt to specialize in. You know, like an elective. Hmm, what should I choose to specialize? Oh, maybe that. God doesn't give us that option. Now, this is what it means to be fundamentally a new creation in Christ. And that brings us to our third point. To live for Christ and not for ourselves means to give ourselves in obedience to this new covenant ministry. 
to give ourselves in obedience to this new covenant ministry. Friends, we don't need to wonder what we should be doing as a church. The Lord tells us. That should be obvious. If it were not for Him, we would have not have come to Christ or be able to live as Christians. Look at verse 18. All this is from God. Well, what is? The ability to see with new eyes, to understand who we are in Christ, all of it is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself, He says. God does not save sinners apart from Christ. He reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Apart from Christ, God doesn't save anyone. God has one way. If you reject that way, there is no salvation for sinners. Your only hope is in Jesus Christ. God did this. This is His initiative. We didn't go knocking on heaven's doors for help. No, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were spiritually alienated from Him, while we had gone astray, each one to his own way, God came to seek and save the lost. The lost person hasn't figured out things for himself. He's lost. And notice that word that Paul uses. God through Christ reconciled us to Himself. God met our greatest need by sending us His Son to reconcile us to God. Friend, if you're not a Christian, then you should know that this is your greatest need. Your greatest need is not that you are poor or that you don't have a job or that you don't have any friends or that you're not popular or good-looking. Your greatest need is that you need to be reconciled to God, your Maker. Because He stands over you in wrath. You have turned away from Him and turned to your own wisdom. You have not lived for Him, but for yourself. And it doesn't matter if you've done some good things for people according to your definition of good or the world's definition of good. In neglecting God, in neglecting His Word, you have dishonored the ultimate and highest source of all that is good and right and holy. And for that, God stands over you in judgment and will condemn you to an eternity of conscious punishment. Do you understand what that means? You will face the full fury of the wrath of the Almighty God. But friend, the good news is that you can be reconciled to God You can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ just as we have been if you will only put your trust in Jesus. You see, we are not good people. The people you see in this room, we're not good people who have everything figured out. We are unworthy sinners who have been saved by a gracious and good God. And He has changed our hearts. He has forgiven us of our sins and He has made us His children. But that's not all. God, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us a job. He gave us a ministry. And this is a glorious ministry. 
a ministry of the Spirit who now indwells us, a ministry that is far more glorious than the ministry of the old covenant law itself, a ministry not of condemnation, but of life. Here's what God did that now informs what He wants us to do. Look at the verse. God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us, says Paul, referring to the apostles, the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the word reconciliation, as you know, implies a ruptured relationship between two parties that needs to be restored. And Paul lets the Corinthians know what lies at the heart of apostolic ministry. Look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world. In Christ, God was doing this. Colossians 1.19 says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was both truly God and truly man, and through Him and in Him, God was doing this. Now by reconciling the world, He means the world of sinners who Christ came to save. Not just the Jews, but a whole world of sinners, people from every nation to Himself. And how did he do that? Look at the text. Not counting, by not counting their trespasses against them. Paul says, by not holding our sins, our transgressions, every disobedience, every violation of God's word, by not counting it against us, through Christ and in Christ, God forgives us. He forgives us. That's what that verse means doesn't count it against us. But how do we learn about this? How do we get from God's work in Christ on the cross? We were not there when God accomplished our reconciliation on the cross. Well, that's where the apostles come in. Look at the text. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the apostles, the message of reconciliation. You see, there can be no ministry of reconciliation without the apostolic message of reconciliation. Friends, this blessing of reconciliation is what David speaks of in Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2, which Paul later quotes in Romans 4, 7 to 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You know, this tells you that there can be no reconciliation to God without receiving the Lord's forgiveness. Our sins, our offenses against Him are real and vile and treasonous, and yet He forgives us in Christ. He doesn't hold it. He doesn't count them against us. This is the message that Paul was called to proclaim, the forgiveness of sins in the name of of Jesus Christ. See, it was God who had called Paul and the apostles to do this, which is why he says in the next verse, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Now an ambassador is someone who represents his nation. And Paul says, we represent Christ and his kingdom. Our words are not our words. They are from him. Our lives are marked with suffering and life-transforming power. And these lives represent Him. And God speaks through His apostles, 
calling people to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Look at the verse. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. God does this. He entreats sinners to come to Him through His Son. That message is given to a perishing world through the apostles. Now just for a moment, just think about how this applies to us. How do we today have this message of reconciliation? Well, we received it in the apostolic word, in the inspired scriptures. We know what this message of reconciliation is because the apostles wrote it down. And just as God entrusted this gospel to the apostles, He entrusts this message in His written word to His churches, to you and I. To faithfully proclaim the gospel of God's forgiveness in Christ and in Christ alone to a dying world. You see, in that sense, you and I are also called to be ambassadors of Christ and His kingdom. And we too are called to appeal and persuade people to come to Christ. And we too, listen carefully, when we have been sinned against by grace, ought to forgive one another and not hold our sins against each other. But having said this, notice what Paul does after talking about the message of reconciliation. After talking about how God forgives people by not counting their sins against them, he says, we implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ. In other words, he's saying, this is what Jesus wants for you. Be reconciled to God. Now, if you've been paying attention, you should ask, but wait a minute, isn't he writing to Christians? Haven't they already been forgiven and reconciled to God? And the answer is yes, they have. But remember what has happened. There was an unrepentant minority that had still not repented and reconciled with Paul. They were led astray by these false apostles and they were deceived into following another gospel and another Jesus. And so when he says, be reconciled to God, what he really means is be reconciled to him, to Paul. You see, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul's words to them are the very words of God himself. That's the foundation upon which the church stands. And therefore, unity between Paul and the Corinthian church is not a secondary issue. It's fundamental to their existence as a church. And so we must understand that this call to reconciliation is a call to be restored to their relationship with Paul and his message. This was a relationship that had been damaged because of their sinful thinking, because of their acceptance of a deviant message and divisive behavior. Friends, today as we present the gospel to others, we must remember that, that we are not apostles. We don't call people to reconcile to, to us in that sense, in the same sense that Paul is speaking about. But we call them to reconcile to, to God in Christ. God makes His appeal through us as we speak His word. As we speak His word. Just as it was impossible for the Corinthians not to be reconciled to God, 
It's impossible for us not to put our trust and be reconciled to God through His Word, the apostolic Word. You see, Paul calls these Christians to restore their relationships with Him and with one another precisely because it is keeping, in keeping with the message that he proclaims. We are who we are because we serve a God who is in the business of restoring ruptured relationships through His Son. And friends, this is why we need to be reminded of this message every day. When we sin as Christians, our union with Christ does not get affected, but our communion does. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. And when this happens, we must identify our sins, we must confess them, And ask Christ for His cleansing work in our hearts. And we need one another's help to help see our sin when worldliness clouds our thinking. And this is what Paul wants them to do. He wants them to see with new eyes their hostility, their coldness towards Him, their lack of affection. He wants them to see their wrong-headed thinking and be reconciled to God. He is working for their faith and for their joy. And I want to ask you this morning, can you do that? Can you do that with other brothers and sisters? Can you offer help to a husband and wife who have had a fight, sinned against each other with their words and haven't spoken to each other the whole day? Are you willing to enter into that? Brothers and sisters, God has called you to the ministry of reconciliation. Be like your Savior. Be a peacemaker. You know, this has nothing to do with how good you are or how well you have sorted out your life. This is about Christ's life-transforming, reconciling grace in the gospel. And He has made you sufficient for that ministry through His Word. It's not about covering up sin. It's about exposing it, dealing with it, addressing it, and pointing people to Christ. It's not about your goodness and your righteousness. It's about His. It's about His. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. We are called to remind one another of the new righteousness that we have received. We're called to remind one another of the new righteousness that we have received. A righteousness That is not ours. And in the comfort of that spiritual reality, we must pursue reconciliation with one another. We must make it our ambition to please the Lord in our bodies. Why should we undertake this difficult task of pursuing reconciliation in our relationships? Because that's what God did for us. That's what God did for us. Or as one author put it, Those who are reconciled to God are reconciling people. Those who are reconciled to God are reconciling people. Grace Baptist Church, there's no point in saying that you believe in the gospel of reconciliation if you are not engaged in the concrete, self-denying, time-consuming, uncomfortable and often painful task of reconciliation. Look at what the Lord has done for us. Verse 21. For our sake, He, that is God, made Him, 
that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The text says, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was sinless. The Son of God came into the world, sent by His Father, and He took on human flesh. And He was sinless. He was without sin. He knew no sin. Imagine that. In all His thoughts, His emotions, and His actions, He never once committed a sin. Never once had a sinful thought. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, was the only sinless human being who walked the face of this earth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived a perfectly obedient life to His Father's will, and He went to the cross to suffer and die in the place of sinners for all those He came to save. God did this. He didn't have to, but he did. He could have condemned all of his enemies, every sinner to hell, and that would have been perfectly just. But instead, in his great love, he sent his son. He took the initiative to restore undeserving sinners to himself instead of abandoning us to our sinful state. Beloved, have you ever considered that perhaps your hesitancy to go and tell your brother or your sister his or her fault, to go and speak to a sister who has spoken unkind words to you, and it's caused a drift in your friendship, have you considered that perhaps this is a lack of Christ-like love on your part? Have you ever considered that it's a, perhaps a refusal to embrace a ministry that calls you to suffer in the path of obedience? The Apostle John tells us that you know that He, Christ, appeared to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. 1 John 3, 5. Friends, God sent His Son who chose to enter into our sinful world, into our mess. And he became a man of sorrows and was acquainted with grief. And he did it, look at the text, for who? For our sake. God made Christ to be sin for our sake. Now that implies substitution. But what does it mean that for our sake God made Christ to be sin? Well, it doesn't mean that Christ was no longer sinless when He was bearing our sins on the cross or that somehow He had our sins injected into His bloodstream. No, it means that God counted our sins against Him. Do you remember verse 19? Look up. Verse 19. In Christ, God was not counting our sins against us. This is how we are forgiven. But how can a holy and just God forgive our sins without compromising His justice? He doesn't because He counts our sins against Christ. He bore our sins. Our sins were credited to Him. 
He was judged in our place so that we could be forgiven. So far from compromising His justice, the cross actually demonstrates His justice. God treated Him as though He had committed the sins of everyone He came to redeem. God treated Him as though He lived my life. He treated Him as though He had your filthy mouth. He treated Him as though He had sinned sexually. He treated Him as though He was greedy, as though He was abusive, as though He was a thankless and discontent man. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, forsaken, estranged from God and the object of His wrath. Every evil thought, every vile and wicked deed was credited, counted to Him. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You know, that language of Christ being made sin ought to remind us of those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Those sin offerings, those Levitical sin offerings. When the people of Israel sinned, God graciously permitted a substitute sacrifice for their sins. And when that animal, without deflect, without blemish or defect, was offered as a sin offering. The priest would lay his hands on the head of that animal, identifying the sins of the people with that animal. It was not merely an offering. It was an identification with their sins, with those people. And so when the text says God made him to be sin, that's what you're supposed to think of. It's not just the work of Christ on the cross that saves. It's Christ himself. Who saves? On that cross, God poured out His righteous wrath, His punishment on Christ, treating them as though He had committed the sins of all He came to save. He did this for anyone who would repent of their sins and put their trust in Him. But He did this for the purpose of a great and, and glorious exchange. Look at the text. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that... That's the purpose of God treating Christ as though He had committed all our sin, so that in Him, through faith in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, our becoming the righteousness of God, that phrase is parallel to His being made sin for our sake. And this means that just as our sins were credited to Him, counted against Him, imputed to Him, His perfect obedience, His holy righteousness is credited to our account, imputed to us. This blessing becomes ours by faith. When the light of the gospel message makes us spiritually alive. Friends, this imputation of Christ's righteousness to us is necessary. You see, it isn't enough. It's not enough. For our sins to be punished. It's not enough for us to be just forgiven. God demands a perfect righteousness. And we are incapable of providing that. We cannot save ourselves. So what makes us think that we can satisfy the just demands of God? No, there was only one who was able. Our sins for His righteousness. 
His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. See, this great exchange is the gift of God. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we are covered by the robes of His righteousness. So that when God looks at us, He sees the spotless righteousness of His Son. Friends, this is our standing in Christ. This is how God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't take bad people and make them good people. He takes bad people and declares them to be good. He declares sinners not guilty. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled. Isaiah prophesied that God's restoration of His people would be accomplished through His suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 4-5 looks forward to Jesus' saving death for sinners. He says He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. Church, you have been reconciled to God by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God has been restored. Praise the Lord that our sins have been forgiven and that we have peace with God. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to a holy God if you repent and believe in Him. You don't have to leave from here this morning storing up more wrath for yourself. You don't. Turn to Christ. Repent, I implore you on the basis of God's true, unchanging, and infallible word. Be reconciled to God. Friend, there's nothing you need to do. It's all been done. He has paid it all. Come to Him. Acknowledge your sins. Call on the name of Jesus. Trust in Him. And receive the gift of His righteousness by faith. Perhaps you have some relationships in your life that are dysfunctional. Perhaps a broken friendship or a marriage or some other relationship that needs mending. Let me tell you this. None of those matter as much as this relationship. Be reconciled to God. Jesus died and rose from the dead to give us eternal life so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for His glory. But here's what I don't want you to miss. Don't miss this. In calling these Corinthians to repent and reconcile And in reminding them of the gospel of reconciliation, we should ask, why does Paul remind them of their glorious position in Christ in this way? That we might become the righteousness of God. Do you remember what he calls the ministry of the new covenant in chapter 3 verse 9? He calls it the ministry of righteousness. Of righteousness. You see, not only is Paul making a case for the glory of the new covenant over and against what these false apostles were teaching, but he wants the glory of this truth to transform the hearts of these Corinthians so that they would pursue reconciliation with him and others if they had truly received this grace. In other words, righteousness is imputed to us by faith in order that we might pursue righteousness by repairing and restoring relationships. Let me say that again. Righteousness is imputed to us by faith in order that we might pursue righteousness 
by repairing and restoring relationships, also by faith. You know, we see this emphasis at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Paul says, aim for restoration, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You know, sometimes when we are really upset with someone, with a brother or sister, if we've just had some sort of conflict, you know, we often think, oh, they need to fix themselves and get their act together before they deserve my wonderful friendship and fellowship. Did God do that with you? No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, when you remember that your standing before God is based on the righteousness of Christ, imputed to your account, when you remember that your righteousness is in heaven, and you let the glory of these new covenant truths press upon your soul, it ought to make you long to bring your sins to Christ, to confess them, to repent, to forgive one another, to see relationships restored and thrive in this congregation. Beloved, God-glorifying relationships are built on a solid foundation. And that foundation is Christ and His gospel. Remember that you are a new creation in Christ. Regard no one according to the flesh. And no matter what relational difficulties may arise because of our sins, remember that the gospel that we proclaim to unbelievers also calls us, the reconciled, to be peacemakers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your reconciling grace in the gospel. Lord, we marvel at your grace and your love for us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work powerfully in our hearts, especially when we are hurt and wounded and sinned against, or when we have sinned against one another. Lord, we pray that you would convict us of sin, that you would work repentance in our hearts so that we would forgive one another and be reconciled, so that the world would see your glory in the church. Help us, O Lord, for we know that your grace is sufficient for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.